Hello, and welcome to another session of the Stafford Beer Brain of the Firm Reading Group with General Intellect Unit. Uh, and today we will be covering Chapter 19, uh, The End of the Beginning. So, uh, Beer's comment at the, the start of the section here is that... Uh, so, um, in chapter 19, uh, the story of uh, the whole development of Cybersyn through that sort of initial period of, of the uh, revolution that Bure was involved in uh, is concluded. There seems little point in offering further analysis here, in summary, of a chronicle which steadily unfolds itself in the text. So, yeah. No need to summarize, let's just get to it. January is high summer in Santiago, the one month when people who can afford it decamp to the coast or to the mountains to leave a capital that is like an English summer for the rest of the year, and people say, don't worry, it is too hot for revolutions. On the 10th of January 1973, I spent all day sweltering in the operations room, supervising changes to the Checo screen apparatus, which was not animating properly. Nonetheless, there it all was. The room existed. Of course, it was not running the Chilean economy, but it was the last of the four Cybersyn tools to be ready. It was a viable transducer. Only the linkages remained to be made. In the next few days, I prepared an inaugural speech for the president and also a very long explanation of the arrangement of the room and its purposes, which was intended to be recorded for all the visitors that were waiting to come from every level of recursion. It was this fact that gave rise to considerable disagreement between several of us about the Spanish language version. Were we really talking to ministers, parliamentarians, senior officials, bureaucrats, workers' committees, or the people themselves? And if to them all, as was strictly intended, in what order? Meanwhile, and simultaneously, there was yet another major change of emphasis on the political front. For complex constitutional reasons, the ministers of economics and finance had changed places. Cybersyn especially was clearly related to Corfo, a branch of economics. We had already said that its tools were ready to be handed over, and all the personnel belonged to Corfo as paymaster. But Fernando Flores was now minister of finance, and he continued to be the political director of all our cybernetics. So far as I knew... I was still the scientific director. Thus, there began a new series of demands on the core group, which had almost no relevance to the prior history. The strain was telling on everyone. Two key people were confined to bed for the whole of January and most of February, too. The president, as I spoke to him once, though unofficially in January, seemed more relaxed than anyone, despite the imminence of the March elections. The point about these was crucial. If the vote for Allende fell from 36% to less than a third, he would be constitutionally compelled to resign, and certainly he would have acqui acquiesced in that. Given all the difficulties since October, such a result seemed a plausible outcome. But Mario Grandi made a detailed political analysis which suggested that the Unidad Popular vote would actually increase to at least 40%. 
In the event, it was 43%, and it is surely a terrifying conjecture for democracy that an increase of 7% in popular support might sign the death warrant of any administration. Uh, so we are on now to the cybernetics of public accountability. It is against this background that we come to consider the whole question of announcements, of which the inauguration of the operations room was intended to be the first. It is first of all necessary to distinguish between the various publics to which such schemes as these are accountable. Foremost of these is the public who will be actively involved in the scheme. As explained in earlier chapters, we had aimed for participative management of both Project Cybersyn uh, via workers' committees and individual advisors and the People Project via the political parties and uh, the arts connections. Be it noted, though, however, that the customary excuse me, that the customarily fine balance between the leadership of a participating group and the dragooning of consenting assistance, which causes difficulty in every presidential office type of organization, is further sharpened by the use of innovative technology. Because the would-be participants do not know what the opportunities are until these novelties have been explained, and it is difficult, if only because of enthusiasm and the need to overcome psychological and intellectual inertia, not to exert pressure in the process. Even so, the members of the whole participative group involved in setting objectives and taking decisions have direct access to each other. Cybernetically, the network connecting them is anastomotic and not hierarchic. It is in principle capable of generating requisite variety, and it should exhibit the redundancy of potential command, uh, see chapter 15. It is easy from within such a network to perceive when these multinodal characteristics are being lost. The symptom is for the network to tend to centralize, so that actions increasingly become referred to one dominant person, and secondly, for one person, not necessarily the same person, but one responding directly to him, to act as gatekeeper between the group and the outside world. Not at all surprisingly, these tendencies ebb and flow in strong correlation with the degrees of stress. In, the, in normal managerial circumstances, some one person is known to be ultimately accountable for the group's activity, but in placid conditions he is, quote-unquote, the boss, and the quotation marks are audible in spoken parlance. While as matters become stressful, he becomes capital T, capital B, the boss, and the capital letters are audible too. The cybernetics of the multinode show this to be perfectly acceptable insofar as the greater the stress, the more likely it is that the boss, rather than anyone else, has the information needed to relieve it because he has the better contacts among his own organizational peers. So the potential command is momentarily re realized in him. So the potential command is momentarily realized in him. The caveat is, of course, that when placid conditions return, the boss must again become lowercase the boss, which is something he may forget to do, having got into the bossy habit. Other members of the group then have certain duties to the boss and to the group which are difficult to discharge. I have experienced the difficulty in both the roles concerned more than once.
The last paragraph, as its final sentence is intended to show, is a generalization based on fitting experience into the cybernetic framework of a viable System 5. It was well borne out in the Chilean work, but it was handled successfully by the group. A test for this success can be proposed. Consider the mismatch existing at any given time between the bossiness of the boss in a, particip in, excuse me, in a participative group and the degree of external stress that generates the bossiness through the realization of potential command. If the mismatch grows over a period, the danger signals in the network's homeostats will be steadily amplified by positive feedback until, maybe, homeostasis breaks down. It sounds something like this. Look what he's done. Now look what he's done. I could see this coming all the time. He's mad, I tell you. I resign. You're fired, as the case may be. Whole management groups have been seen to explode into fragments by this process, which obviously ought to be constrained. Because of the stress, such a process often started in the Chilean cybernetic network. But in two years, the names of only three actual casualties occur to me. One who resigned, one who was fired, and one who was, as it were, extruded by mutual consent. The test is more qualitative than quantitative. The group did not explode. Its attrition was natural. All right. Uh, what do people have to say about this? Uh, let's go to Shane and then Jake. It's, it's interesting that this is putting a kind of name to um, a dynamic that seems to show up over and over again all throughout nature, right? Like... Um, under stress, uh, group animals like social animals like wolves will go insane and start acting very hierarchically. And that, that's what led people to believe that wolves were extremely hierarchical. But it was only because they were observed in either situations where Europeans were fucking with them or in captivity, in which case the, the animals revert to a hierarchical, like a, a regression sort of happens, right? Whereas when they're in their natural habitat, they're all very you know, networky and fluid in their dynamics, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we see the same thing again, like in like the Roman dictatorship. Like, um, you know, you have an ordinarily fairly complex sort of governance structure that collapses, in, like it deliberately collapses, in fact, into, um, you know, putting a boss in charge for a short period of time to get over a hump and then dissolves that again. So there's a back and forth. And... This is interesting that Beer is putting all this in terms of the realization of potential command, because the, the multi-node, like from those previous chapters, is all about the redundancy of potential command. It's the distributed, can inter deeply interconnected nature of the network that allows the potential for command to, ar to arise from anywhere. But under pressure, there's a selection pressure towards actualizing the potential command and making it be real right now, rather than possibly be real tomorrow. Um, and in the absence of pressure to the contrary, that will just collapse into boss stuff. Um, and maybe the, the one other sort of thing I'm thinking of here is the kind of anthropological stuff about like how pre-capitalist societies or like um, whatever, put, seem to put a lot of effort into preventing bosses from emerging. Like they, they have potlatch ceremonies to burn off surplus. You have all these kind of uh, intricate rituals to prevent hierarchical centralized domination from emerging. But then once it does emerge, once, once the tyrant does become actual, that becomes a self-perpetuating bootstrapping process 
that snowballs from there. So it, it, it's, it's interesting that like we do see in a couple of different places, these like animals and societies and systems try to not let this happen, but it does still happen under pressure. And ideally it would be kind of nice if like something like the Roman dictatorship where there'd be a formal process for, okay, it's an emergency scenario. You are in charge for the next month and then we're back to normal, et cetera. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's nice to see the cybernetics behind all that, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's also the way that uh, generalships worked in uh, Athens during its hmm. democratic period, where it was okay. a uh, it was an emergency appointment uh, that you know had sort of dictatorial powers, um, and then mm -hmm. it was uh, given the boot. Um, I I guess there's something interesting here that like you you could if you have a formal process for that like like Athens or Rome. You can do this transition back and forth, well, hopefully, so, the, so long as they don't try to rat fuck you, you know, once they're a dictator. But, you know, there was successful, this was successfully navigated a couple of times. Um, but in the absence of that kind of structure and in the absence of counter pressure to pressure away from the centralization, this natural dynamic will just latch. It'll, it'll, it'll take, you know, and it'll stick. Um, yeah, you kind of really need some formalized way of, of, of countering this. I agree. And I, I do want to uh, raise the sort of counterpoint from the anthropology that Graeber brought up uh, in that one uh, paper that we read, uh, mm. which was that in according to him and, you know, sort of his affiliated uh, anthropologists, there was a sort of ebb and flow of tyranny that happened sure. in uh, uh, pre-modern, not even pre-modern, pre-civilized societies mm -hmm. where, you know, there's evidence of sort of monumental constructions, but then that would go away uh, and there would be, uh, you know, uh, a, a evidence of more sort of egalitarian societies and then it would mm -hmm. come back to tyranny again. Uh, so it's, it's uh, not necessarily the case that uh, there's, a, there's a natural tendency towards uh, sticking in the dictatorial mode. Mm. Um, gotcha. Uh, but, uh, you know, who knows what happened between let's all big, build a big monument to me and now nah, fuck that, we're going to build like, <laughs> public housing, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> cool. yeah. I've kind of forgotten that paper. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, who knows what the mechanisms were? We have no idea. All we have is like some very rudimentary uh, archaeological evidence. Uh, okay, uh, let's go to Jake uh, and then Rudy and then Matt. Yeah, this definitely like you know this this dynamic of like well you know we're we're all stressed. A lot of stuff is happening. Not sure what to do. You know, and then it's like it would defer to whoever has the most experience or whoever. Sometimes just whoever is willing to be like, yeah, let's just fucking do this. And then everyone's like, I guess we'll just do this. You know, it's like and and I like how he kind of describes it as, uh, you know, it's that it's like kind of the person who has the best connection to these disparate parts of the organization. And I think it's it's also um, it's a, a thing that comes about due to these lack of formalized structures for de distrib for distributing the information and distributing the connections uh, in the network to different people or to you know, or to technology that doesn't rely on like a person being suitable to make the connections. Cause that's definitely something that I've encountered a lot where, you know, the connection that I have to one part of this network is a person 
and then that person gets stressed or they have a lot of work to do and they can't be that connection. And then whatever I was trying to do that involved that part, it just has to be put on pause or whatever, which is very frustrating for sure. Um, and you know, it can, it can lead to a lot of like destabilization of, of the structures that are put in place. Um, and I think, I think this is also, you know, you see this on the left, a lot of like substitutionism, right. Of like people, especially like in leadership positions, substituting themselves for like the work of membership, um, which has the feedback of concentrating more tech, like more knowledge and experience in the same people who have it, you know? So then that doesn't lead to building leadership and stuff. So, you know, um, and that's, that's like, again, it's, it's like these, these structures that need to be put in place or should be put in place rather like to prevent this, especially when things are frantic, like now, you know, it, it can be a little tough to make that case to people that don't, aren't sort of thinking of it in that like framework, you know, of like, well, you know, these things are necessary and it's not just a factor of like, well, it'll be nice to have these, but it's like, if these aren't in place, then it could very easily lead to like a destabilizing thing. I mean, like, I won't get into the specifics, but in, in uh, one of the organizing projects I'm, I'm involved in, it's just like, there are like five people who are doing all of the work and I've been trying to be like, Hey, we need to be better about spreading this out about like getting more people involved and people are on board, but it's just like similarly, right? Like there's no, there's these structures aren't in place. So because of the stress that's put on the people and the system, there is no way of pushing that stuff out more. And it's just like a matter of figuring out how to do that, like on an individual level. And, and yeah, uh, I think I'm, I'm, I, I like that he kind of like really names this and, um, I can only imagine how much stress they were under in Chile to, to get this stuff, uh, like to figure this out. Yeah. And I think that's an important point here, right? Is that they're in a, uh, high stress revolutionary situation and, um, there's still a kind of, uh, oscillation between, uh, uh, centralized or sorry, uh, like, uh, yeah, centralized and, uh, you know, kind of, um, I guess actualized and redundant, uh, control, uh, would be the, the best way to put it. Uh, so, you know, it's clearly not the, the, the message here is not, is clearly not, oh, once you get into a revolutionary situation, you just want a dictatorship because it's an emergency situation. And then once the revolutionary situation is over, then you get rid of the dictatorship. Uh, that's not what's going on here. It's quite a bit more fine grained than that, uh, even though, uh, you know, uh, beer recognizes the need for actualization of control in certain circumstances. Uh, uh, Matt, go ahead. Yeah, but, um, uh, yeah I, I think it's interesting that the, um, uh, yeah, who winds up as um, sort of dictator? Yeah, what? Yeah, kind of. It, 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 it kind of winds up being um, 
you know, decided by like the peripheral connections, which, you know, by, I, I think is something that's super interesting that, that, that beer is always very mindful of that, you know, when these structures aren't working, you know, part of what makes it a viable system is that there is always a backup. It is always just, you know, kind of, kind of like the very like low level, like, like social dynamics like that. And, you know, the, like you know, there, there, there's kind of like, 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 like something to that, you know, I mean, uh, I, I think of like a, when I've had a, a you know, a good, a good, uh, 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 ma manager or whatever, you know, but part of it was that like they were connected to lots of different parts of the endeavor and like knew the different meta languages and like already had like working relationships with, with a bunch of people. And, you know, like the that's probably like a complicated thing to, to, to maybe, you know, if, if uh, uh, you know, we're going to get rid of uh, 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 the, um, yeah, the, the, the social division of labor, you know, like that doesn't necessarily something you can easily teach. There may be something like, uh, um, you know, the, the synchron, the synchrony thingy that, that, that beer likes. Maybe, maybe that helps do that. Um, uh, um, and then, uh, you know, uh, also want to mention, you know, when it comes to like, like the avoiding, you know, like like this state, you know, the, the equilibrium of the uh, um, the dictatorship that, that, that never ends. Like, and they were just, yeah, like pre-modern peoples were like really aware of this. Like I'm thinking of uh, um, in the uh, um, uh, in, in, in the uh, book of um, uh, in, 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 the, in the book of Samuel in the Bible, like, uh, uh, you know, before then, you know, they had the judges that got raised up, you know, whenever like there was need for it. And then, you know, they asked for a king and then, you know, God tells them that, that uh, this is a terrible idea. You know, well, like he's going to steal from you. He's going to be terrible, but fine. <laughs> and, 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 and they were like even aware of like uh, the, 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 there is a version of this that there's that there's no coming back from that that, that you know like that is just the state and i think it, it, it is it's also like um a response like increasing complexity like uh, if your original model like doesn't really work anymore like i mean you know like rome's republic fell because like it was governing like way too much territory basically <laughs> like uh you know like you needed to fall back on this kind of um uh, um yeah, so, so, sort of a um, yeah, like energetically favorable state. Um, I'm also thinking of even a um, yeah, like a, a, you know the commune state giving way to, to the party state. You know, I think the commune state is actually kind of a bad idea. <laughs> like like a, maybe something more like a bourgeois government with separation of powers and everything actually gives you the requisite variety. And you know, uh, and yeah, like I haven't like looked into it too much, but like I think part of like you know like the party could actually govern while the commune state did, didn't. You know, was yeah, what was just like not not having like those. You know that internal like uh, um, uh, structural variety that like allowed you to govern anything. Obviously, you know the party state didn't really work, but you know like like there's a reason why the commune state like gave way to this sort of like natural you know kind of like yeah, low energy you know not you know um, uh, 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 version of it. Uh, yeah, I mean we have to be uh, realistic about. Um... <laughs> Uh, having some kind of organization uh, because, um, you know, uh, if you look at the Paris Commune, basically you had um, Blancists taking over the situation towards the end there, right? Um, and... This idea that it was like, you know, left to its own devices, it would just sort of perfectly blossom into communism uh, is, is, is really quite absurd considering, uh, you know, yeah, it was it was it was there was a clear there was a, a clear tendency within the Paris Commune for uh, the most organized group, which was the Blancists, to take power. Um 
So yeah, organization matters. Um, definitely. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, that, that, that spontaneous stuff is like a Boltzmann brain theory of revolution, right? Where like just like a, a fully formed brain will just spontaneously just pop into existence somewhere in the void and then instantly decay. Um, it's not that it's impossible, but it's mm, unlikely. Um, the, and the, maybe this another throwaway thought here is, um, I mean, we're maybe thinking about this, um, you know, ebb and flow between... Uh, potential command and like actual command or like the that sort of stuff in I mean contemporary terms of like what's going on in bourgeois politics right now right like I mean it's possible that like bourgeois the bourgeoisie have been able to coast for a couple of decades on fairly distributed like a soft authority sort of way of controlling things via finance and markets and all that other horseshit and now that they're under pressure uh, we're, you're just seeing this like hard hard authority and the, the 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 sort of strongman stuff reemerging, and it's um yeah, it's it's this is probably what's going on here too. Right, and I mean the thing about the connectedness of of leadership, I mean, it is in a sense, um, well, it, it, it's very clearly what gave the advantage to Biden over Sanders in the Democratic leadership uh, race. Right, is that. Biden was much better connected to people who had power than Sanders was. Uh, and was, you know, his Biden's people were able to just mobilize uh, a, a united opposition to Sanders and, and win the race because those connections existed and they're very powerful. Uh, it's not to say that, uh, you know, that's absolutely determinative of outcomes. But as far as like organizational dynamics go, uh, that does check out with what uh, Beer is describing here. And it's also, you know, why Stalin beat Trotsky, right, is he was a more personable person and he actually uh, had connections to people, whereas Trotsky was an arrogant asshole uh, who was famous uh, but uh, was not that well connected and didn't really care to be because um, he uh, had disdain for most other people he met. Um, anyway, uh, that all being the case, uh, Matt, go ahead. Uh, I just one, one last thing on, on connecting this. I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of uh, um, uh, uh, this data science blogger who basically used social network analysis to predict who was going to be the next like premier leader of China, and uh, he, he successfully uh, predicted it was going to be Xi Jinping because he was the best on on two different metrics, both connectivity, and, like in general, he was like uh, uh, connected to like the most people, and also like intergroup connectivity. So like you know, you've got clusters of people who are connected to each other, but not really connected to other clusters. Like uh, um, more of those clusters flowed through him than anyone else. And uh, uh, based on those two things, yeah, this guy figured yeah, he was going to be the next uh, premier leader. And he was. Yeah, I, I feel like this this mode of analysis is very good for sort of like Kremlin, Kremlinology, uh, that kind of like uh, highly uh, insider uh, uh, power dynamics. Uh, it, it, it's 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 quite good for that. The the wild card is always that there is an organized force that intrudes from outside the organization, right? Uh, but as far as as far as predicting who is going to win within a uh, established uh, organizational structure, I think it's really quite useful um, for sure. <clears throat> 
Uh, okay. So let's uh, continue. Uh, next, we come to consider the public that is not directly affected, those who are represented, therefore, by participation, but who are affected indirectly, and in this case, the entire Chilean nation, insofar as these plans intended to change managerial modes of government. Again, then, in this case, there is no method whereby requisite variety can be obtained, except through external amplifiers that are outside the control of the sponsors of the work. This comment refers outstandingly to the political opposition. Remembering that Unidad Popular was a minority government, and remembering the case already submitted, uh, submitted in these chapters that the cybernetic group was working as a management service to that government, it would make no sense what, whatever to invite participation from the political opposition. As already remarked, there were political opponents working inside the projects as a matter of professional freedom, but they were not there to represent their party's causes. Had they been, no consensus would have ever been reached about anything. I refer again to the opening arguments of chapter 16, but do not repeat them here. It follows that the law of requisite variety can be met only through amplifiers capable of reaching the whole nation and not only the minority of the nation as represented excuse me as represented in participative project management such amplifiers are usually referred to as the mass media and in chile these were dominated heavily dominated by outspoken opposition interests this analysis pinpoints a dilemma it would have been cybernetically wrong even if it had not been unethical, to try to keep the work a secret because of the counterproductive consequences of attempting to thwart Ashby's law. The law always reasserts itself. And if the mode of amplification, in this case from 40 to 100%, equals times two and a half, were not properly designed, then the government initiatives were likely to be overwhelmed. A two-and-a-half times discrepancy in variety matching hardly lies within experimental error. Uh, so the 40 to 100% is the 40% who voted for Unidad Popular, uh, the, or rather for the government. I, I think, uh, yes, yes, uh, yeah, sorry, that was the vote for Unidad Popular. And then the 100% being the entire population or the entire voting population. Um but the amplifiers could not be designed since they were under the opposition's control. This being so, we had neither sought secrecy for the work nor attempted to advertise it, and this, this was surely the best policy. Up to this point, early in 1973, we went about our business, just circumspectly. Even to do this presented problems. Large numbers of people were involved in our activities, including political opponents, although not in the core group, as I called it before. My own presence in a government office quickly drew attention, and therefore I left it. For the whole of 1972, I worked out of the biggest hotel in Santiago, unnoticed among the celebrities, Chilean and foreign, who were continuously in occupation. But the work was based in Corfo, which was entirely appropriate so long as Flores was in economics. 
and we were dealing directly with the industrial economy rather than with agencies spotlighted as planning or policy making, which moreover were regarded as the sectarian property of individual parties within popular unity. In this way, the force of the Ashbean dilemma was deflected for more than a year. But it is always dangerous to tamper with natural laws, and we were alert to the need to take the initiative in redressing the variety balance at the propitious time. We define this as the official launching of Cybersyn via the inauguration of the operations room. Alternatively, we knew that we needed to act quickly if these matters came to public attention. Meanwhile, silence rather than secrecy was enough, because the media were very slow indeed to catch on to the importance of the work. But as it turned out, they were inconveniently too fast by just one month, as shall be seen. Returning once again to January 10th in the operations room, it was clear that the propitious time for announcements to the larger public was drawing nigh. These announcements stood to be radically perverted by the opposition-dominated media. The Flores solution to this had had for a long time been that I should make an announcement about Cybersyn in England, and at the same time as the Chilean government spoke in Santiago. The idea could be viewed, in public relations terms, as an attempted escalation in credibility, London supporting Santiago, and vice versa. Cybernetically, it was of course an attempt to regulate the amplification process that was not under control in Chile. The hope was that by enlarging the Chilean public to the world government public, a more objective media treatment on an international scale would insist that the Chilean media held substantially to the truth. The machinery was this. I had been asked to deliver the Richard Goodman Memorial Lecture for 1973 at the Brighton Polytechnic in England. Goodman had been a brilliant cybernetician and a dear friend but I had felt preoccupied by the Chilean work, and originally contemplated making excuses, at least for that year. Suddenly, the invitation became exactly the right medium through which to make the Cybersyn announcement in England. It was the occasion par excellence. Uh, Richard Goodman had been dedicated to the underprivileged. He had fought in the Spanish Civil War, and thereafter, he had devoted his work to ordinary teaching in a college well-known for its third-world student intake, spurning high academic honors. Had he still lived, he would surely have taken sabbatical leave to join me in Chile. Everything fitted together. What a celebration! It was still January 10th. The Richard Goodman Memorial Lecture had by now been fixed for February 14th. On Sunday, January 7th, the science correspondent of the British Observer newspaper, Nigel Hawkes, published an article entitled, Chile Run by Computer. The article gave its own source, the underground science newsletter, Eddies, published in London. The Observer article correctly reported me as somewhat taken aback at the disclosure, and said that I should be giving more details in Brighton mid-February. Meanwhile, however, it is noteworthy that the Observer preempted the whole story without a detailed interview. I was taken aback only by telephone. This is called a scoop. It thereby set the whole tone of subsequent reportage, not so much by the article itself as by its title, Woe to Sub-Editors. 
By Monday, excuse me, by Monday the 15th, less than a month before the Brighton assignment, the Observer article had been widely noticed, and a cabinet meeting in Santiago concerned the original leak, plus its Latin American copies and speculative elaborations in Colombia, Argentina, and Chile itself, in uh, Valparaiso. The story had been printed in eddies in the first place as a result of what I had told a political group in London in the attempt to gain help for the activities earlier called externalities. There had been a misunderstanding about confidentiality on one man's part. Nothing, not even the most expensive public relations program, can generate the requisite variety needed to regulate the media worldwide. All such attempts have fortunately always failed and will continue to do so as long as free speech is anywhere allowed. Our plans had gone wrong. I gave very strong advice that the government should immediately make a full-scale and high-level press presentation of Cybersyn with a televised tour of the operations room in order to amplify the government side of the variety equation to the full. The counter-argument was that the place would then need 20 armed guards to resist sabotage by the opposition, not to mention the vulnerability of the hundreds of input stations spread over 3,000 miles of country. Various decisions were reached and then rescinded at least once a day throughout the week. Many other things were happening, notably a copper strike. At any rate, the initiative in the Battle of Ashby's Law for Project Cybersyn was lost that week. The story had already been filed, as far as the British media were concerned. There was no support, nor extra information coming out of Santiago, as had been planned. I left for Europe after an extremely friendly and particularly useful meeting with the minister, during which this issue was virtually disregarded. Nothing was going to be done about it, obviously, and there was so much else to be done about the other limbs of our work, especially in the circumstances that realists now knew for certain that the administration would not be allowed to run its full term. He gave me a new brief in this regard. But one thing relevant to Cybersyn still had to happen, namely the delivery of the Goodman Memorial Lecture itself on February 14, 1973. That did happen. The address itself, called Fanfare for Effective Freedom, is printed in extenso in Platform for Change. Present on this occasion was the Chilean ambassador to London. Absent on this occasion was any one of the 20 scoop journalists invent invited by the Goodman trustees. The questions that afterwards were mostly elementary, save for those of one well-informed academic who wanted full details of the relationship of Project Cybersyn to all the planning agencies in Santiago. Naturally, the reasons have already been given in these chapters, I could not go beyond saying that the work came under the aegis of Corfo. During March, I was engaged in externalities matters around Europe and was not in Chile again until April. By this time, Cybersyn had been praised to the skies and damned to hell by a variety of critics. The details are of no concern to the cybernetics of public accountability, consisting as they do of the usual mixture of carefully considered reviews and ad hominem assaults, the latter coming exclusively from two British journals which take a special pride in scientific and social responsibility, but which, perhaps for that very reason, reduce themselves to, on this occasion to hysteria. 
This section is concerned only to point out how the attempt to regulate, not the media, but the design of the government's own amplification system failed. And especially how, once such a transducer had become denatured, then, as with a neuron that cannot respond during its refractory period, nothing happens at all. For this was the cybernetic truth. The Battle of Ashby's Law for the reputation of Project Cybersyn had, as we said earlier, been lost in advance. The algodonic signal constituted by the immediate effects of the first major leak on January 7th had been ignored. That was the cardinal error. What happened in April in Santiago was not an error. It was the natural reaction of a denatured transducer. Not only was there all the published evidence to consider, not only was there a question of the efficacy of the project to consider, not only was so much else happening at the time, the academic member of the Richard Goodman audience whom I had perforce turned aside chose this moment to make a vitriolic personal denunciation through a private channel open to her which led straight to the cabinet. This attack nearly finished me in Chile. That it did not was due to the support of the man who had fetched me to Chile in the first place, aided, I suppose, by the general knowledge at the cabinet level that at least some of the accusations that had been made in Odium Academia, or sorry, in Odium Academica were manifestly false. All of this argues that public accountability can be discharged locally, which because the local system can be designed to exercise requisite variety. This means that the negentropy pump called information can successfully offset excuse me can, can successfully offset the entropic drift towards disorganization by invoking the basic cybernetic principles of the multinode as already discussed. Secondly, it argues that on some larger scale, the capacity to deploy requisite variety is lost because control of the design of the amplifiers of regulatory variety is lost. In the Chilean case, this happened, for political reasons, at the national level. Thirdly, it argues that by engaging in a yet higher level of recursion, and in this case the international level of governmental systems, negatropy can in principle be pumped back into the intermediate, i.e. national level of recursion, but that this is a very difficult maneuver to handle. In principle, one does not have recursion excuse me, in principle, one does not have requisite variety to handle it, and the only recourse is to be exceptionally alert to algodonic warnings of disaster. These, to conclude, were missed in the presentation of the Chilean cybernetics applications, possibly because my colleagues thought, if so erroneously, that the danger signals were hurt pride in masquerade much more plausibly because there were too many other things to do, and certainly because there was no organizational apparatus for handling algodonic signals outside those built into the social economy regulation itself. We had not got that far. All right, let's uh, talk about this. Uh, Jeremy, and then, then Shane, and then Jake. Beer's going to go back to this idea that the media plays with the variety of systems in chapter 20 in much more detail. But it's worth considering that people can shoot out messages with shitty information that totally fuck up your organization, even if they don't know anything. They can come up with a plausible narrative at any point that derail things 
And that, as a weapon, gets used all the time. And as just, I mean, at some point, there's a blurring between whether someone said something because they're stupid or someone said something because they're malicious. And it's not really relevant. Uh, People can put out detrimental information and have that cycle extraordinarily quickly. I don't think this is a problem beer solves, but by pointing to it, he shows all of our projects are susceptible to this, especially because we need to get that information out there to support us. And those, by exposing ourselves, by by trying to drum up support for what we're doing, we're also exposing ourselves to being shot down by media, PR, propaganda actors who can just take pot shots at us in places we can't fight back. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm, I, uh, I, I cannot help be, or sorry, I cannot help in reading this uh, be reminded of uh, the uh, uh, disaster of uh, anti uh, anti semitism investigations in the Labor Party that uh, you know torpedoed Corbyn and uh, ultimately has uh, kicked him out of the party. Uh, so um, you know both because this involves intra left backstabbing. Uh, and also because it involves the British media. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's worth taking into consideration that the day that it, I mean, before the election was called, there were centrist Democrats like Connor Lamb and Abigail Spanberger, ex CIA Abigail Spanberger, who began attacking AOC, Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. police abolition before they even knew the results of the election, claiming that that's the reason why Democrats lost seats in the House, yes. causing AOC and other people to shoot back. And then immediately the original narrative was AOC is tries to be divisive, shooting down the Democratic Party. If it hadn't been for people like Beto O'Rourke and Doug Jones having her back and reiterating her message, it could have been a lot nastier. Right. There was definitely a power play made there, uh, especially when the exit poll information was quite unclear. I mean, uh, certainly I I feel a certain degree of regret about our post-election coverage of uh, what happened in America because um, we were going off of the information we had and that information was quite misleading as to what actually happened. Um, I would uh, say one other thing, though, which is that uh, the other way this reminds me of the Corbin case is that, uh, like, we don't really know exactly what the organizational history was while Corbin, Corbin was in power and why or like what was done about those investigations. Uh, but um, it feels like a similar sort of situation where like there's probably a whole bunch of internal organizational pressures that are confounding an effective result. Um, uh, OK, so everyone's got their hands up. I'm going to I'm going to go. Uh, let's go uh, counterclockwise. We'll start with uh, uh, Mark O and then go around or sorry, clockwise. OK, cool. All right. Yeah. Um, I'm uh, Jeremy kind of hit what I 
on what I was getting to, but uh, I was just thinking of like a, a contrast and not necessarily, although uh, obviously your idea, your uh, example is good, but I'm just thinking like, can you trust anything you see in like US or British media about like a, a Latin American leftist government or, you know, news out of Syria? So like, even though this case seems to be like, you know, oh, somebody found about, found out about it and they didn't like it because computers or whatever, you know, it's like, uh, but beer still had the trust, like, well, if we get our message out there, you know, it'll be good. Whereas the, uh, uh, the information warfare has, uh, uh, gotten so much more sophisticated in the ensuing decades that it's just like, yeah, it's just like, <laughs> like looking back, like, oh, he could think that. I mean, people still think that, but <laughs> they really shouldn't. So, um, yeah, I mean, the but yeah, uh, but then uh, as Jer Jeremy said, we'll get into that more, like the whole news cycle issue in the final chapter. But uh, yeah, I mean, this just shows, like, even if that was, but if it was just a couple of cranky people, then obviously they knew what was going to happen in Chile with the, that the opposition was going to seize on it. So it didn't really matter. Like it didn't have to be some, you know, uh, paid, paid actor, like, uh, from some Bellingcat type organization. Right. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the media landscape these days is, is a lot more complicated than it was at that time because yes, the, Sort of the the sophistication of psyops was less um, less developed than it is today, uh, but at the same time, the number of media outlets was very small uh, in at, at uh, the national international level. At the local level, it was actually a lot more diverse. But um, when you look at the national international level, it was very very small. So. Uh, especially in the case of the, uh, Britain, I think it was very much organized as an old boys club and especially um, tied to like former military personnel. I think were a lot of what tied together the media landscape in Britain. And I think I think beer was relying on being a member of that old bo old boys club to um, help him get his message out, but he was not able to effectively do that. But I, I think like that's what I read. Having having read about the media history in Britain, uh, I think that's probably his play that he was trying to make. Um, yeah, yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, okay, so uh, let's go to Rudy. Yeah, on that topic, you know, that's why you end up having things like Telesur or Chavez. You know, Chavez is usually made fun of or criticized for just having like his one hour programs every week. But people forget the reason Chavez said he wants to talk one hour is that they could hear him for one hour without any intermediaries. And, you know, this is a bit like it's kind of sad, you know, that public television is somehow seen as brainwashing. I'm not saying it isn't, but it was a natural response to private media. Say like, well, this is our government. We are going to control the messaging in this. And it's, you know, everything gets corrupted the same way like parliamentary immunity was meant to prevent frivolous lawsuits against workers. And now it's just another tool for corruption. So it always seems like you have to catch up with the game, right? Yeah, I think we'll have to talk about Telesur uh, when we do get to Beer's comments about mass media, because it seems like... Uh, 
sort of left to their own advice uh, devices uh, that like a media outlet of a similar type, if not the same sort of like, you know, um, <laughs> extremely message control oriented propagandistic uh, or organization like Telesur is something that like Beer was driving for with his like efforts to get documentaries made for his efforts to get movies made for his efforts to get songs to be put out and his advocacy for like, you know, places where they could amplify their variety and get their messaging out. Um, and also sort of like integrate the population at large into the cybernetic apparatus that they were trying to create, uh, to create a sort of, of linkage. Um, so I don't know if they would have ended up with something exactly like Telesur, but there's no question that Beer was kind of driving in the direction of having a media outlet that was not uh, overwhelmingly controlled by the opposition. Uh, Steve, go ahead. Yeah, I mean that. Just to add, or just to add a little bit more on this. Like one thing I've always been struggling with throughout this, right, is that I feel like there's some level of well predictability or regularity, or in the case of the media, sort of good faith that beer is relying on here. Because like when you have this situation where people are blatantly injecting or injecting blatantly contradictory information, right? Like how do you possibly navigate that space to be able to um, control the variety in, in the signals here, right? So like when you have a situation with, you know, Trump obviously, or all of the stuff with the, the Democrat CAA op blaming the left, right? For their message, there's, you're working in a space where there's just as much, if not more false information there that completely prevents you from actually like being able to look at the variety that's generated and control or operate in that space in any sort of meaningful way. Right. Cause it will either push you in the wrong directions or you'll just end up with like every outcome is equally, you know, you're, you're in the full sort of entropy entropic, entropic situation where like everything is just as equal as anything else, or even in the malicious sense, like the, the wrong, wrong actual understanding of the, the state of the system is is being amplified and like i think of things like you know the mass media both siderisms which is specifically like amplifying wrong information and attenuating uh you know possibly correct information so like all of these things which are directly interfering with being able to like get a foothold in how the system actually is um worries me about all of this, right? Because, you know, with that, you can, it's not just a matter of finding like statistical regularities because like false data is injected into the system at an overwhelming rate. Um, and I don't know how to get around that. I mean, certainly like it comes into play more, more so with the media, but you know, there's always going to be malicious or and or incompetent actors as Jeremy was saying, it doesn't matter um, regardless of your system, but like clearly in the media domain, it is uh prevalent and yeah it, it's troublesome right yeah i mean i don't think everything's lost because like you look at what happened in bolivia and it's like you know the new york times is still trying to paint <laughs> the return of morales is like you know some imperial march playing you know darth vader has arrived 
uh, everyone is uh, horrified, like the dark days have come. Uh, but, you know, his party still won the damn election. Uh, uh, and uh, what was it now? I guess he was able to survive the coup because of Mexican assistance was was a big part of that. Uh, got a flight out of there on, on a Mexican uh, military uh, plane. Uh, so, you know, it's not impossible to overcome these things, uh, but uh, very, very difficult. Very difficult. Uh, Jake, uh, go ahead. Yeah, I definitely think, uh, yeah, people are definitely right on the money about, like, the media generates a lot of variety, and especially now, like, what was this, you know, since Trump, like, it's like the ultimate generator of, like, false variety, you know, Uh, and just, well, maybe not generator, but the amplifying of it through social media is just insane, you know, and as to, like, ways to fix that, you know, I certainly don't think I have a magic bullet or anything, but I I would think it would be more about uh, trying to sort of um, bridge those gaps, you know, like instead of there being this middleman that is the media between the people who aren't involved with the projects of, you know, the revolutionary society or whatever, and the people who are like bridging that gap, really connecting them on a more like personal level, or at least on a on a more personal level, not necessarily a personal level. Cause you know, at that scale, right. It could, I don't know if that's possible, but, uh, but in some sense, you know, like, like you, uh, like whoever mentioned with like Che giving those speeches, it's like connecting people to like what's actually happening on the ground. You know, like I, I think that does a lot better, you know, thinking about kind of the organization I'm in of, we don't do a lot of social media, you know, people don't really know about us unless they have a personal connection to someone who is doing the work, which in my mind is kind of better than social media, at least at this stage we're at, because you don't need all that false variety that gets generated when you sort of connect to social media and you don't need the variety that gets generated by people who have like, uh, what's the word, like malicious motives, you know, or like, uh, an incentive to see your project fail, whether even it's because they're in favor of capitalism or because they just like have some personal, like, Oh, I don't like seeing this other group succeed while I'm not, you know, which is unfortunately all too common, you know? So I I think uh, definitely like managing that in a sense, but like at the scale that beer is, was dealing with here, you know, at at a nation level, you can't keep stuff secret. You know, you can't really, it's at some point, um, you know, when it comes to like those, the the massive stuff they're doing and and they're basically doing it on the tail end of when it was possible for that to conceivably be kept secret you know before smartphones were everywhere before before even video cameras became cheap enough to to have you know in in a lot of homes um you could sort of not talk not uh communicate what was happening in one country and it wouldn't be then no one would know about it unless they were in that country but now it's it's impossible right now. You know, the, the, the world is, I think, too, too globally connected just on those like multiple levels of multiple, multiple systems, system twos, I guess. Um, and yeah, I, but I, I also just like, I really like the framing of it, of sort of, you know, the idea of like being scooped as 
introducing a massive amount of variety fault, you know, and not the variety that you wanted and not true, like not based on reality, like into the system that is dispensing this information, you know, because, um, I don't know, it's just, it's just an interesting way of thinking about it, you know, and, and I kind of like that as a way to frame the problem of like, you know, how do you communicate the work that you're doing? It's really, you got to frame it in like, you know, is this going to introduce, it's like, it's like when, when someone's, uh, when you get like doxxed by fascists, you know, it's like you're introducing a lot of variety into your system, which is coming from people who have very different political beliefs than you that want to see you harm done to you. And that oscillates the whole system out of control, you know? So it's like, you've got to clamp down on that, you know, whatever, scrub your social media or, or whatever, and prevent that, that variety from warming its way into your system and kind of exploding all your feedback mechanisms. Right. I mean, uh, I think the obvious problem with sort of having direct connections between Cybersyn and the people it's serving was that it's a national scale project and needs to be addressed in that way. So, like, certainly they were working with people, like, openly in a sense, right? Because they had the workers in all the places where uh, Cybernet was connected. Uh, that were working with this stuff. They had workers coming in for training. You know, it wasn't a secret project as such. It was just not an advertised project. Um, and I mean, I think Beer was basically correct that there needed to be some kind of messaging about the project, even if, you know, it's. Like that that went beyond the people who were immediately involved in it because it was an object of such importance. Like it's easy to present it as being a, uh, a you know what what the left in Britain presented it as is like a a a, a mechanism for tyranny um, of of just like cybernetic control of the population like uh, like Amazon or something. Um, or even like, you know, there was that one article that came out recently about that one person who was working at Facebook dealing with um, censorship of uh, political messaging. And she was saying, like, you know, I felt really uncomfortable because I was operating without any accountability at all and basically having the power to sway elections one way or the other, depending on whose message I amplified and whose message I attenuated. You know, that kind of thing is what the left in Britain was actually worried about, not Cybersyn. So, yeah, it's... uh, I mean, I I think at, at the level of local organizing you don't necessarily need to have a media strategy or you don't need to have a a media outreach. But I think Beer is correct in saying that when you get to a national or international level, you need some kind of amplification. It's got to be there because there's just so many people involved that can't be directly hands-on involved in the project. Um, Shane, go ahead. 
Yeah, I mean, first thing is that the fucking Brits, just a nation of fucking vipers and swine, um, without exception. Um, they ruin fucking everything they're involved with. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think, like, the solution to a lot of this stuff is, is just going to be, um, like, trust and familiarity, right? Like, I think some a lot of these examples really highlight the problem of bourgeois, like, parliamentary politics as an alienated domain, right? Because, like... If you imagine like a parallel universe version of Chile at this time in which these these sort of techniques had been deployed on the ground for decades or like for years, like and, and the the whole like left movement was kind of built on these things. And like this stuff was already familiar to Chileans and was already well permeated. Like the British media could realistically go after the Cybersyn team and take them down, but it would have an impossible time somehow brainwashing all of Chile into believing something that would be contrary to their own personal experience. Like they say like, oh, this system is just a Skynet thing. And people are just like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, I, I know it. Like, we've been using it to organize our union. You know, it's just like, this, does, this just doesn't smell like anything familiar to me. Or when, when I don't know, Trump is like, oh, I hear, I hear Bernie Sanders eats babies. And it's like, you know, people can be like, wow, geez, that sounds terrible. Because... You know, it's like, they've, you know, it, but, but like, if you're familiar with all these people and stuff and you actually trust them, it's like, no, that, that's fucking horseshit, right? Or like with the example of the anti-Semitism thing in the, the Labour Party, right? Like, I mean, the, the sort of better outcome of that is not like, oh, everybody closes ranks and just denies that, oh, this is obviously bourgeois interference. That would be like, no, yeah, like the Labour Party probably does have an anti-Semitism problem because Britain has an anti-Semitism problem. But it's also fucking clear that this is Tory Blairist fucking interference. And the, but that, that would require familiarity. It would require like actual mass involvement in the Labour Party, which isn't a thing. Um, it would require people to know all the people involved and to actually trust them. So it's a lot of this like, I feel like this kind of like, you know, taking down an entire movement by just put, public pushing out one tweet that accuses them of being fucking space reptiles or something is only is 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 more possible when you don't have mass support and you don't have real trust in in your institution um and would get proportionally less possible when the argument itself would be on its face fucking ridiculous uh, because people would know otherwise like imagine somebody saying like oh at dsa meetings they set people on fire and like you know if people go there they're just like no i've never seen that happen you know, like the, the accusation just falls fucking flat. Uh, but that would require mass involvement for that to really stick. Because if you're not actually involved in it, it just sounds like everything else that's on TV. It's fucking fantasy. It's like somebody says, oh, wow, look, at, imagine this fantastical scenario. And you go, yep, cool, sounds good. That, that's, that's information I can, I can ingest. Um, the other tiny little thought was like, you know, for like updating this kind of stuff is like, hey, podcasting. Imagine if uh, Corbin had a fucking Twitch channel and he was like streaming Fortnite every uh, every Saturday night. You know, <laughs> would you not? Would, would that kind of shit not fucking work better than you know being aloof and distant in in Parliament and so on? You know, and that's for one of the more personable sort of political figures. It's like this: this politics as this alienated sphere just isn't going to have this kind of like mass trust and mass support. You just, you got to have this shit built up and have people instinctively not believe the horseshit. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think Corbin would probably object to playing uh, Fortnite on principle, <laughs> as you consider it to be uh, too violent and, uh, and uh, 
uh, like, uh, what is it, uh, uh, jingoistic. Uh, mm, sure. <laughs> <laughs> given that he's an incredibly obstinate person. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, but, um, yeah, I, I, I think uh, I, I can definitely concede the point that mass participation helps to amplify a variety. It can create trust. It can create linkages. But I do think there's, you know, cases you can think of where it's it's not a solution. So, for example, um, one example that came to my mind uh, in this discussion was the situation in Portland. So Portland was used by uh, Trump as, you know, a sort of a straw man, right, of, of, oh, Antifa is in the streets, they're, they're destroying all that is sacred to our civilization, blah, blah, blah. And to people in Portland, not only was that ridiculous, like the people who actually live in the city, not only was that messaging ridiculous, like they might not be the biggest fans of Antifa, but they can sure as hell say that you know, what Trump was saying about Portland was manifestly false. Um, and they, they not only they not only didn't believe what Trump was saying, but they also resented being, you know, turned into a straw man for Trump's instrumental political purposes and having their city and their life slandered by this uh, asshole with the bully pulpit. And with Twitter, right, an, an incredible Twitter outreach because of it. And, um, you know, be that as it may, that messaging was still effective because it's literally impossible for everyone in America to be a resident of Portland. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. It's simply impossible. It cannot be done just because of physical reality. Uh, so there has to be some kind of of messaging at a distance to counteract that. It can't simply be hands-on engagement because it's not always possible for that to be the case. Like now, if everybody was involved in an organization that was deeply connected to Portland and also other parts of, uh, you know, America, there could mm -hmm. be internal messaging within that organization and similar life experiences among people that would uh, push back against that kind of messaging. And indeed there was, right, to some degree. But, mm -hmm. you know, that messaging did reach some Americans. There's no doubt about it that, 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 yeah. that you know, scapegoating Portland in that way was effective to some people. Uh, yeah, I guess that's, that's, that latter example is more the thing I'm kind of getting at. Like, I mean, obviously you're going to have on the ground, you know, direct well, like nice stuff, but like I'm thinking, like if if there was a real, if there was a mass workers' party in the U.S., like people in Tennessee would would also probably not believe the slander. Like you know what I mean? That 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 sort of thing, right? Like it's because um, you'd have reason not to. This is the thing is like, what what are your priors on on any 
nugget of bullshit information you get. Because I mean, it's it's TV, it's it's Twitter, it's it's fantastical la la land, right? Like you, somebody says, "Hey, what if fantastical scenario?" And you go, "Yeah, sure." And sounds sounds like everything else I've seen on TV, fantastical scenarios. But like, you you if you were in a workers' party and it was a real thing, you could just be like, "No, my priors on this are, are otherwise." Like this is clearly nonsense. Yeah, it's it, it couldn't possibly rely on just direct, immediate, like touching each other's faces sort of contact. Um, but like real mass organization and mass mass participation for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And well, I mean, in your 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 internal messaging, your system too within that organization has to be reliable and not duplicitous, right? Because it's very easy for you know, say, oh yeah, I get like you know, I'm a worker. I get the my union newsletter at my workplace, but I don't believe it. Because of X Y Z reason, where my I don't mm. actually trust my leadership in my union. Uh, yeah, for sure. You know, and, and that's the real the real issue there. Uh, but mm-hmm. uh, Matt, go ahead. Sort of, um, oh yeah, go. Ahead. Mm. Yeah, um, uh, uh, first, uh, you know, death to England. Yeah, you know, that, that, that's, that's it's very important. Um, uh, uh, um, yeah, like uh, I'll start with, with with the general thing of, of like you know, uh, media has reach. But like it's the weakest thing, you know, like in your, um, uh, um, you know, in, in how people like th- think of things, because uh, uh, so, you know, like it, so if there are people who have like say on a matter, but are like not connected to any alternate like, uh, um, you know, thing that they trust more like media. Yeah, l- l- like that's how media narratives can really, you know, l- like shape people's brains because, you know, it, 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 it is effective in, 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 a, uh, yeah, in, in agenda setting, you know, just what issues are important to begin with. You know, in, in sort of anchoring things, um, uh, uh, and also ju- just uh, um, you know, there, 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 there's this thing. Um, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, there, there's a cognitive bias that, that basically lets you makes you say that you know, how often does this happen? Is how often I can easily recall a memory of it. And you know, like media can really mess with that. That's part of why you know, people are more afraid of car crashes. Or people are more afraid of plane crashes than car crashes, even though car crashes are a million times more likely to kill you. But because you know, uh, plane crashes make the news. Um, uh, but the thing is, like all that is outweighed if you if you know like one person. Or like have one you know uh, organization that you're plugged into um, uh, that, that you trust more. Um, yeah, I'm thinking about like um, yeah yeah uh, uh, you know the indigenous communities um, uh, you know that, that, that Mass is involved with. You know like they're not gonna believe you know what BBC says or what the New York Times says. <laughs> like there's no amount of propaganda that can come out of them that's, go- that's going to change what they think. Same thing with the uh, uh, you know the, the authoritarian psychos who love Trump. You know it doesn't matter like how much of the rest of the world's media. Um, uh, 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 yeah, says that that uh, their uh, you know their, their cult leader is you know uh, is is bad. You know, like they are plugged into a social context that yeah, like they're uh, uh, you know that they trust more. So yeah, feeling that yeah, ultimately yeah, well, workers' party with its own you know uh, prolet cult and uh, uh, its own uh, uh, you know uh, uh, its own press and its own its own media and everything and organizations for people to be a part of that you know is just more influential than you know random news stories. Like that's ultimately the answer. Also, death angler. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think. Uh, well, you know, we could be optimistic for twenty twenty one that maybe Britain will finally die. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, I, 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 again, I think it. We need both, uh, both sort of large scale communications approaches like the ones Beer is talking about here as well as meaningful 
connection between people's lived experience and their political activities. Um, they're both important. I, I, I just don't think we can completely substitute one for the other. Because if you completely substitute in the media direction, you get like new labor, right? And if you completely substitute in the opposite direction, I mean, you either get Cybersyn being overwhelmed in this way, or you get uh, uh, essentially <clears throat> essentially localism. Um, you just, yeah, we can't fight on the media landscape, so we're going to do activity outside of it uh, to the best of our ability. Um, uh, okay, uh, Steve, go ahead. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, just real quick. Um, I have been seeing a lot of, like, well, you know, a reasonable amount of, like, rumblings from, let's say, the progressive left uh, media folks, you know, f like Jamal Bowie and Chris Hayes and uh, what's his name, David Roberts, you know, really trying to, like, nail home the fact that we just, the left in general just does not have neither the media capacity that the right has, um, nor do we have the sort of focus in messaging um, you know, so the, the information channels and the information content, right? The, the Democratic Party, I would say, or the establishment Democratic Party has, they don't have as much channels or outreach. Um, they have their messaging, but their messaging, of course, is like completely incapable of actually dealing with the variety of reality, right? Like their uh, uh, battle for the soul of America and all, all those platitudes that like have no actual real information content by definition there can't actually like govern or like lead to any sort of govern or, or, um, stability in the system. They're just, it's just noise, right? It's just nonsense. Um, and like, I, you know, there, it's incredibly hard to conceive of how the broad left could develop those channels, um, for communication to counter the right, um, I mean, there are certainly ways that we could do it. You know, people like AOC are trying, uh, but they single-handedly can't do it, of course. Um, podcasting isn't going to work. <laughs> um, but, you know, like, I don't know, like Twitch streams, that's not going to work, right? But what the right figured out is that you need something like Fox, which is sort of 90% of it. But then they reach out to YouTube and all the various ways that people are starting to consume stuff that... Um, the left might have it in disparate ways, but we, we don't have the consistent message to, to amplify across those either in a way that the right does. And um, in some ways, like I think the left by nature can't do that, right? Like what we do is we split hairs and we fight with each other. And that's, we wouldn't be the left if we couldn't, if we didn't do that in many ways, right? We, and I think there's there's a positive spin to that, which is just that like we can accurately or more accurately try to actually assess the reality of the situation um, and handle it in, in its variety more effectively. Um, whereas you know the right only cares about a few things and they hammer it home and get people win people over you know win all the people in rural Idaho um, over by talking about Portland on fire you know that that sort of thing like they can do it but. I don't know. I mean, like, it's it's clear the left needs better channel capacity and a better way of actually having messages that can amplify actual means of dealing with reality. And uh, 
you know, that's not going to come from the Democratic Party. That much is clear. And it's not clear where it can come from, because as soon as we sort of try to inject that into the system, it's like we're just make, we're just adding more noise and variety to, to everything. And like, I don't I don't I'm pessimistic of seeing a way out of it, I guess. Well, I, I guess I would, first of all, like say that it's very easy on the left to overstate the degree to which the right is unified. Like, because we don't see that on a daily basis, but actually there's a lot of backstabbing and squabbling and all these kinds of uh, organizational divisions that happen in the right. They tend to be like they have been a lot more successful at overcoming that. But I, I, I wouldn't like I, I don't buy the idea that the, the, the right is in lockstep unity because that just is not true. Like the there is a, there's a lot of divisions on the right right now, even if the overall they seem to be winning politically. Uh, I think just to respond directly to that, like, I think that's true in some sense, but they also have a tendency to fall in line at some point in a way that the left doesn't, you know, and that's right. Yeah, I I think generally speaking, yeah, uh, they have uh, they have issues that they're able to more successfully uh, fall in line around Uh, and um. I don't even think that has anything to do with authoritarianism because uh, there are plenty of authoritarians on the left, uh, like plenty, no, no lack of them. Uh, so I, I don't, I don't think that's that's necessarily the cause. Uh, you know, uh, ostensibly the left is about human liberation and you know, sort of achieving a, a, a post state society but actually we have many many authoritarians on the left uh they're uh, really and always have always have since the beginning of the left um that being said like i mean i think an advantage we have on the left is that we have so many um educated people who could work for us that are sympathetic to our causes uh, but ultimately we aren't able to pay them. So that's a problem. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, I mean, the, the whole education system and the universities uh, tends to produce educated people who have at least some sympathy with what we're saying uh, and some antipathy towards what the right is saying. Uh, and so I don't consider it like... The, the, you know, the march through the universities was not a success, but it did kind of produce some sort of capacities uh, on our side. Uh, it's just, yeah, again, like I think you hit the nail on the head there, uh, Steve, when you were talking about consistency being a problem for us. You know, Bernie was very good at consistency. He's just, you know. He's the most boring speaker in the world because he only had like three things to talk about and he just said them again and again and again and again and again and again and again. And occasionally that might have worked against him, but you can't fault him for not having consistency and not uh, sort of like bulldozering through uh, attempts to disrupt his message. Um, So I do think that there's some value there. Um, uh, Shane, go ahead. 
still think Bernie's message would have worked better if he was streaming StarCraft 2 or something while he was... A tiny micro-remark here, I guess um, we uh, sometimes or often hear this kind of thing of like, oh, you know, left media grift, oh, it's not, it's not building revolution, whatever, we have to do we have to do protracted people's war. We have to really, you know, go up into the mountains and just start abducting farmers and killing them or whatever. That's, that's the real way to revolution, whatever. Um, I think Beer's analysis here makes it more clear that even if we are, even if we're a bit cool on the, uh, the like active construction that this media thing can do, at the very minimum, we'll need this kind of media muscle to do countermeasures against fuckery. Um, so that's that alone is enough to kind of justify building that kind of capacity because we will be fucked with in this channel um, and we'll need some sort of ability to respond to that even if we don't think that having a Patreon is going to usher in the, the, the human emancipation or whatever directly yeah I mean I'm not under any delusions that our outreach as podcasters is sufficient uh, that's for damn sure uh, <laughs> we don't have the resources for that. We just don't. We don't have the connections uh, to influential, uh, influential people uh, to 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 get lots of people uh, to recommend or lots of people with sway to recommend our work. Uh, and we don't have the, the material resources to advertise. Uh, so, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's, like, <laughs> one fucking I, I, would, I wouldn't say this is, you know, a cult. Yeah. We, we did one ad in Jack. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, <laughs> the fucking Bernie issue. <laughs> yeah. They put us, they put us in the margins. Uh, Motherfuckers, uh they put us in the fold. It's yeah, barely, that's barely right, the fold. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that, that was very funny. Uh, but, um, yeah, you know, uh, I don't think what we're doing is useless here. But at the same time, I'm not under any delusions that this is a viable way to to get uh, like a, you know, an adequate amount of variety out there. Um, uh, Matt, go ahead. No, we are to like squabbling on the left versus, uh, uh, you know, like a kind of more unified uh, uh, right wing and, and liberals. I think so much of it is that, is that like, um, you know, uh, uh, yeah, but like the left is still very much a subculture more than anything else right now, because, um, uh, you know, like the actual like, you know, struggle institutions were completely decimated by the Red Scare and, uh, and Gladio and fucking Condor and other shit. Um, though, I mean, you know, but, but essentially like, like, you know, in, in the in the U.S., like it is kind of still more a subculture than, than anything else. Um, uh, and, you know, the, and that creates its own um, uh, it creates its own incentives, you know, it, uh, uh, you know, like like a, a, a making like a hyper specific brand makes a lot more sense if you know you're basically in the same job as like a music critic <laughs> well like that then that makes sense but you know if, if it's hooked up to actual organizing then there's actual reasons to put aside your just uh, uh your differences but i mean if all you're doing is discourse then what why would you ever put aside your differences you know you, your differences and going at your differences are like that, 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 that's actually your whole thing and so and uh, uh but you know uh, flip side is um you know one thing i think um you know uh, uh, the uh, left media ecosystem is really good for is, uh, you know, like uh, uh, just like getting organizing on people's radar. Like, I mean, I, I have a really stupid origin story. Like I started listening to Chapo and then you know, I, I learned that DSA was a thing. And then I just kept my eye open for, you know, like, oh, yeah, maybe I should join this one of these days. 
And yeah, like, yeah, just getting people looking for an on ramp who don't necessarily like have like an easy way to, way to jump in, I think is useful. But yeah, I mean, it's it's got to loop back to organizing. You know, it'll be a lot more serious when there, you know, when there is work to get back to. Like, <laughs> that's when you can put aside your differences and get back to work when there is actually an organizing project to do. Uh, yeah, I mean, maybe that's one reason why the democratic messaging is somewhat effective is that there are like when election time, like, so outside of election time, there are a lot of uh, grassroots organizations that are affiliated with the democratic party, um, which people can get involved in, which, but I think that's, you know, quite marginal in terms of actual engagement, but during election time, uh, there's a machine and you can go out and you can participate in it and the messaging has some ac accordance with what you're actually doing. Uh, and, and, you know, like, uh, for the most part, our podcast said nothing about the election because there was nothing to say about the election that would be anything more than the kind of, uh, you know, uh, left discourse position mongering that you're talking about, Matt. Is, which is I don't I don't think is any is is actually constructive unless you actually have a position to defend that's worth something. Uh, but when you know it's Biden versus Trump, it's like well, there's nothing to say. So um, there's a clear disconnect between what we could say and what people would actually be involved with on the ground there. Um, uh, yeah. So anyway. Um, Thank you, everyone, for uh, participating. Definitely appreciate all of your points of view here. It was quite a lively conversation. And I expect we're going to see uh, more of that when we get to Beer's uh, suggestions, if not actual, like, hard programmatic conclusions about what to do about this media problem. Because I think, that, as Jeremy has said, uh, in the final chapter, uh, Beer hits on this pretty hard. So, uh, yeah, thanks, everyone. Uh, and uh, I will see you next week for uh, more reading. Yeah, thanks everyone. It's been great. Bye. 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 Bye.